years ago, there was a uh, wonderful Christian couple who had a new baby, and it only took a few weeks before they realized that the baby was having trouble with its vision. And so they went to see the doctor, and the doctor said, um, yeah, there's something wrong here. We'll have to kind of wait until she gets a little bit older to see what's going on. And so as the baby developed a few months down the road, the doctor said, um, your baby's blind. Uh, she can't see. Um, there, there is a procedure that we can do that's a little risky, and it may work, it may not, but it's going to be... Uh, 12 years down the road, you have to wait until the child is 12 before we can even think about doing the surgery. And so you can imagine the anxiety of this couple as they waited 12 long years for the possibility of maybe their child being able to see. But as the child turned 12, they went back to the doctor. The doctor agreed to do the surgery. And so fast forward to the day of the surgery, and the child is in the, in, in the pre-op, waiting to go under the knife, so to speak, and to relieve some of the anxiety, the mom is talking about what she sees, and she's looking out the window, and she's telling her daughter, it's a beautiful, crisp autumn day, the leaves have changed colors, the sky is really blue, the trees are swaying with a little breeze, the grass is, is still green, the child just soaks it all in, and until they come and take her in for surgery, and the surgery was a success, and, and the doctor and the nurses are in the room waiting to remove the bandages to see if everything did work as planned. And as they remove the bandages, the little girl looks at her mother, first one she sees and goes and, and embraces her, and with tears streaming down her face, she looks out the window, and she sees the green grass, she sees the blue sky, she sees the, the leaves that have changed color, and she looks at her mother and she says, why didn't you tell me it was this beautiful? And her mother said, I tried, but no language could do it justice. You just have to see it for yourself. And folks, I think that perhaps maybe when we get to heaven, maybe we're going to observe everything around us and we're going to look at God and say, why didn't you tell us it would be this beautiful? And maybe he would say, I tried, but no language could really do this justice. Last year, I was invited to speak at the Red River Family Encampment. If you've never been to that, I strongly suggested it's a wonderful experience up in the mountains of new mexico you know you're under a tent with 1500 to 2000 other christians singing listening to speakers i've been asked to to come about the last five or six years and and for the last few years the theme has centered on a song and each speaker is given a line from the song as the subject for their lesson this past summer the theme was redeemed how i love to proclaim it and you want to guess what my line in the song was no language my rapture can tell. Yeah. Yeah, at first I thought I'd made Jerry Lawless, the executive director, mad. I, I thought, surely I've offended him in some way. What in the world does no language my rapture can tell even mean? It's a confusing sentence, at least to somebody like me. But I started doing some research, and I started asking some of my song leader friends, and come to find out, it's a beautiful phrase. A wonderful line in the song. You know, Fanny J. Crosby, who wrote that song, was blind from birth. She couldn't see. And so when she talked about her, her uh, disability, if you will, although she probably wouldn't call it that, she said, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for that dispensation. 
If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it, she said. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. So Fanny J. Crosby felt that she was blessed to have been born blind. But it was her heavenly vision that caused her to see things from a different perspective. She even stated, when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. Someone once asked her, is there a special hymn related to your conversion experience? And she said, I would write many hymns to describe the joy of my salvation, but the one that stands out most to me right now is this, Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. And proclaim it she did. Over and over again, through hymns that many of which we still sing today. As beautiful and as majestic as the words to that hymn are, when I came to my line, no language my rapture could tell, as, as I did some investigating, I started realizing that the fact that I can't understand it is really the whole point. I mean, the fact that it seems convoluted and confusing is really kind of the point. Fanny J. Crosby was trying to pick words to describe something that was indescribable to her. Rapture was probably the most extreme word she could find. Now, some Christians avoid singing that song out of ignorance, in my opinion, because they think that the rapture there is talking about, you know, a false doctrine. That's not what she's referring to there. It's just the strongest word she could find to describe something that was indescribable. And I've heard from people like Mike that it kind of fits her triplet rhythm, which I have no idea what that means. But so there was another reason for using it. The whole point was she was trying to describe something that no language could do justice. That was it. Over the last few weeks, we have been talking about salvation words in our one-word series. And my goal has tried, to been, has tried to get you to understand just how significant and the magnitude and the meaning of these words are as they relate to us. I mean, justification, propitiation, atonement that we'll talk about next week. These words have dire meaning to our salvation and, and, and who we are as people of God. Here's a woman who understood the meaning and magnitude of redemption. Do we? Do we really understand it? Do we really take it to heart? Because my fear is that you're like me and sometimes I take it for granted. Go back to the Old Testament. Six weeks into the wilderness, the Israelites had to say goodbye to Elam, to the 70 date palms, to the springs of water. And as their food supply dwindled, they began to feel stranded and betrayed. Although God had provided for them over and over again, they still lacked confidence. So much so that they start moaning and groaning and mumbling and grumbling about their current condition. These selfish individuals were ready to return to slavery. How silly is that? They begin questioning God and his leader. And in Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 2, it reads, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now that wasn't their goal, but that's what would happen, right? It didn't take long for the Israelites to become spoiled and self-indulged, and that led to short-term memory loss. They had forgotten about the hardship of Egypt. They had forgotten how difficult it had been. 
They're only recalling the fact that they had pots of meat and that they had some things provided for them. They forgot about the harsh slavery and the conditions that they had to endure. They also forgot about the miraculous power of God on display as he sent the ten plagues. They forgot about the joy of crossing over on dry land as Moses parted the Red Sea. They also forgot about the sweet water at Merah and, and the twelve springs of Elam. God was their map, their compass. He had been all along. He was their provider, the, their protector. But in their self-absorbed pessimism, they couldn't see past their own nose. And they couldn't see that they were better off than when they were in slavery. How could they have forgotten so quickly? How could they have taken God's gracious providence for granted so quickly? Have you ever taken God for granted? You ever taken your salvation for granted? There's a college professor who handed out his syllabus first day of class, and he gave the class three assignments. This was a very large introductory class. I'm sure you took one of those in college where there were like 300 students. You were in stadium seating. You remember that? You look down at the uh, professor. He looks like he's this big because there's so many people in the class. The class is so big. He hands out the syllabus. He hands out an assignment, three assignments, really. The kids had three term papers due, each of them 10 pages apiece, one of them was due on September the 30th, one was due October the 30th, and one was due November the 30th. He said, do not be late turning in the assignment or you'll get an F. He said, do you understand? And they all said yes. Well, September 30th rolled around. 25 of the students did not have their paper on time. And he said, do you remember what I told you? And they said, yes. They bowed their head. They said, yes, we remember. We get an F. But could, could you please just make an exception this time? And they, they begged and they pleaded with him. And so the professor relented and he said, okay, I'll give you an extension. And they said, oh, thank you so much. We won't let you down. Well, October 30th comes around and now 50 students are late on their paper. And the professor asked them, well, where's your paper? And they said, well, you know, we, we're busy, it's midterms, it's homecoming week, we have a lot of things going on, we just didn't get it done, but we'll get it to you. He said, do you remember what I told you last time? They said, yeah, but could you please just extend the deadline? I mean, just this, just this one last time, please extend it. And so the professor relented, and he showed them grace. Well, November 30th rolls around, and 125 students don't have their paper on time. And they traipse into the classroom nonchalantly, acting like they don't have a care in the world. And he says, where's your paper? One by one, he asks them, where's your paper? Well, I, I don't have it. I'll have it to you at some point. I just don't have it right now. And he said, didn't I tell you that you needed to have it on time the times before? And they said, yeah, but, you know, it just, I mean, just didn't happen. Sorry. And so he goes to his grade book, and he opens it up. And these were repeat offenders. And so he goes back, and he looks at it, and he said, okay, each one of you, and he goes down the list. You don't have your paper, F. You don't have your paper today, F. You don't have your paper today, F. And people start to gasp, and they start to moan and groan and start to say, what, what are you doing? That's not fair. What do you mean? He said, oh, it's fairness you want. Okay. So he goes back to their grades before and changes those to Fs as well. Now they're completely flabbergasted. Do you see what happened here? At first, the students were amazed by the grace of this professor. The second time, they expected it. The third time, they felt entitled to it. Not unlike some of us, when it comes to God's grace and mercy. 
We can feel this sense of entitlement like we deserve this. When in actuality, when you feel like you deserve grace, is the point when you completely miss the boat. You don't want fairness when it comes to standing before a holy God. You don't want justice. Be careful asking for that before a holy God. Because do you know what you deserve? You deserve hell. But thanks be to God, we don't have to endure hell because someone endured that for us. Like we said last week, somebody had to pay. Somebody's got to pay. Thankfully, Jesus paid the price for us. It is an insult to God's goodness and holiness for me to accept redemption and then return to slavery. To not, value one of, to not value redemption, to not value salvation is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tragedies, abuses that we could ever be guilty of. Because once you grasp and cherish the power of redemption, it changes you. It changes the way you see things. You, you're not a casual Christian anymore. You don't, uh, you don't skip services because you have better things to do. You don't take your prayer life for granted. You study your Bible daily. You treat worship in a way that is very unselfish rather than treating it selfishly. You don't settle for apathy or complacency. You don't ask God, what have you done for me lately? You understand that this is not about you. Your entire life is an offering of thanksgiving to the God who rescued you. You were Satan's slave. Now you're a child of God. And that should mean something. You go back to Romans 3, and I say go back because we've studied Romans 3 the last few weeks. If you look at Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, it reads, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Do you know what redeemed means in very simple terms? Very simply, redeemed literally means the price of release. And in the New Testament, at least from Paul's perspective, there were two main renderings of this word. At least in the first century, people would have understood redeemed or redemption in two major categories. Number one, it was the price that one paid to release something as a pledge or to put in pawn. Secondly, it was the price paid to liberate a slave or to purchase their freedom. Situation one had to do with prisoners of war. Wars were often funded by the selling of prisoners into slavery. Many times, uh, people would follow the, uh, the marching armies in order to hopefully be able to buy some prisoners of war so that they can put them to work as slaves. The only way a prisoner of war sold into slavery could get out of slavery as if they had a family member who was wealthy enough to go and buy them back. There were prisoners of war sold into slavery who committed suicide quite often because they knew they didn't have a family member wealthy enough to buy them out of slavery, and so they just killed themselves. The second situation, though, involves a common slave. And it was common in the first century for a slave 
or a person to sell themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. And so they would work as a slave. They would earn a little bit of, of money to do that. And if they were patient enough, if they were young enough at the time they were sold into slavery, and they were patient enough, they could go and they could make tiny deposits in the temple treasury. It would take a long time. But after a while, they could purchase their own freedom if they stuck with it. They would take their slave master to the temple where the priest would give the money that the slave had saved up, and then the slave was released. They bought their freedom. The concept of redemption is something that Paul's audience would have understood fully. They knew exactly what he was talking about when he talked about redemption. And it's against that kind of backdrop we just mentioned that we see Paul tie in the sacrifice of Jesus to the freedom that his blood provides. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Looking for the blessed hope, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who, become, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You get the idea. With regular redundancy, Paul links Jesus to redemption, and rightfully so, because none of us have any hope without the blood of Christ in a spiritual sense. You do realize that every single one of us is a slave to something. Every one of us. Not just you sitting here this morning. Everyone in the world is a slave to something. I've heard people say, well, nobody controls me. And they say it with a beer bottle in their hand, half drunk. People say, nobody's the boss of me. Yeah, but you're high most of the time. People are saying, nobody controls me. I'm my own person. No, that's not true. People will say, nobody has any control over me. I would say, you don't know yourself very well. Because everyone is a slave to something. Everybody. The question is, who are you going to allow to be your master? Are you going to allow something in the world, like money or a job or something else to control you? Or are you going to allow Christ to control you? If you turn over to the book of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, you find a rather interesting piece of scripture. It reads, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, there's a lot that we could dig into there that we won't get into. I mean, some say, is this messianic prophecy like Isaiah? We won't get into all that. What I think is interesting is when you compare this to Matthew chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, where it says, So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what he had spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So it seems that, that Matthew uses Hosea's statement here to show that the Messiah coming into the world is an extension of God's love for his people. We can see the connection between Jesus and God's people of promise, which would make sense since Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, if that makes any sense. There's a connection to be made here. As we've said before, the entire Bible is a story of redemption. That's what it's about. God has chosen a people. He's always chosen a people to sustain, to provide, to protect, all those things. 
It was Noah and his family. It was Abraham. It was the Israelites. Now it's us, the church, right? God has chosen us. And folks who say, well, we don't even need to worry about the Old Testament. It doesn't have any use for us today are completely and totally off base. It has everything to do with our story. We're not Jewish. We don't live under that regime. We never did. But it does set up for us our part of the story. We've been grafted into the kingdom. It's not reserved for Jews or their heritage any longer. It's for the chosen people of God, Christians. We are a part of the kingdom. We are God's chosen people now. That story of redemption continues to be told because we all have a past that's rooted in Egypt. Do you realize that? When you read the Bible, read it in that context. We all have a past that's rooted in Egypt. For the Israelites, they definitely had a past rooted in Egypt because they were in slavery, they were taken out of slavery, and they were being moved through the wilderness to the promised land. We have a history rooted in Egypt as well. We came out of the world. That's our Egypt. And that world is rife with sin and idolatry and all sorts of immorality, isn't it? But God has called us out of that. As Christians, we come out of Egypt and we head towards the promised land that is heaven. Isn't that a beautiful story? And you've got to make that connection when you read the Bible. You've got to understand that it's, it's a story of redemption. Not just of Israel, but the new Israel. We are God's chosen people now. We have been grafted into the kingdom. And the kingdom is no longer reserved for those who had a Jewish heritage. It's for all of us who would come to Christ and be redeemed by Him. Paul said these words in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price, Therefore, glorify God in your body. There was only one price that could redeem you and I from spiritual slavery. Only one. And it was the price of Jesus' blood, the innocent blood of Christ. God bought you out of slavery with the precious blood of Jesus. That's redemption. Listen to the words from Paul in Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, you are always a slave to something. But only one master can give you freedom. There is a transfer of allegiance that occurs. When you come out of Egypt or out of the world and you become a child of God, there's a transfer of allegiance. Now you serve the one who said, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have a master still. It's Jesus, but Christ's burden is easy. His yoke is light. We serve a master who, who calls us a friend. A father who calls us son. We are not freed to live life on our own terms, but rather we are freed to give ourselves unto God. It's not just that we have been redeemed from our sins, we have been redeemed to God as well. It's two sides of the same coin. A life without Jesus leads to bondage. A life in Christ brings freedom and a future. So when Jesus cried out from the cross, tetelestai, or it is finished, what he really was saying is paid in full. Paid in full. And you may not see your name on that list. Some of you do, but it's on there. 
If we had the whole list, you would see it. Those of you who are children of God, it's been paid in full. Redemption has occurred. You have been bought back. What a beautiful concept that we should never, ever take for granted. There was a gentleman back in the 1800s by the name of uh, George Wilson who was arrested, tried, and convicted of murder and theft. He was thrown into prison. He was awaiting the death penalty. But his family was very well off, and they appealed to President Andrew Jackson that he be pardoned. And Jackson reviewed the case and decided that he would offer a pardon to George Wilson. So the message was brought to his cell, and Mr. Wilson said, I refuse. I don't want a pardon. I did the crime. I deserve to die. And they said, well, you, you can't refuse a pardon. I mean, it comes from the president. You can't do that. And he goes, oh, yes, I can, and I do. I refuse the president's pardon because I deserve to die. And it caused quite a, a quandary for people because nobody had ever refused the president's pardon. And so it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and Chief Justice John Marshall stated this. He said, a pardon is of no effect until it is accepted by the one for whom it is intended. He went on to say, though it is almost inconceivable that a condemned criminal would refuse a pardon, if he does refuse it, the pardon is of no effect. George Wilson must die. And die he did. All because he refused to accept the pardon. Folks, I'm going to say this very bluntly, but hopefully you, you hear it as loving. If you go to hell, it ain't nobody's fault but your own. So many people want to say, how could a loving God send people to hell? You send yourself to hell by ignoring the pardon. How could you do that? How silly is that that you would refuse a pardon? The price has been paid for you to be bought back. And if you refuse that, that's your own fault. If you end up in hell, you had to step over the cross of Christ to get there. You look like a pretty smart bunch. I hope you'll make a wise decision if you haven't already. Get out of Egypt. Get out of the world rife with immorality and sin and all those things and be purchased. Be a child of God heading towards the promised land. It's silly not to. Come now as we stand and as we sing.